Measure a year. Two days of inspiration, playing hooky, making something out of nothing. The need to impress, to communicate, going against the grain, going insane, going mad. Red. We have a hard time paying rent. We're poor. We are so cold. We don't we have, have heat. Oh, yeah. We yes. are stuck on the street. <laughs> we don't have any meat. And we can't You're making for, fun of rent. And we can't pay for any maids. <laughs> we also all have, have AIDS. AIDS. <laughs> they don't Every all have day, AIDS. I walk down the street. I when hear people say, baby, baby so, so sweet. Ever since puberty, everybody stares at me. Boys, girls, I can't help, help it, baby. So be kind. Don't lose your mind. Just remember that I'm your baby. Well, that was a great episode of Rent, everybody. I will <laughs> sing the entire thing. Welcome to Rent. Yes, I am your resident true forever Rent head. And yes, everybody hated me because of it. But you know what? Hashtag no day but today. Welcome to Rent. I am finally an adult and you have to listen to me talk You're about also it. weirdly in the circle right now. Oh my God, you like Hashtag. Oh Wait, I, I, can I just uh, say rent head is a very boring term it for is. rent fans. It should have been something cooler. Rent, uh, low rent. Rentables. Like, uh, Rentables. Runts. Runts. I'm a rent runt. Yeah. I'm a rent like, runt. Rit- Want to oh. smoke this blunt? What yeah, if yeah. you, you should have been called like tenants. <laughs> Yeah, but then we're owned by the the system. Yeah, guess what? We are. Actually, the (gasps) Bohemians, too, would have been a good one. Oh, the Bohemians. Well, I'm so excited to talk about rent. So you're the rent head. Let's get into the gush because I feel like I I feel this gave me a lot of feelings doing this episode, right? Because I came up in theater. I was a person who really, though, kind of came to dislike musicals early on or or resent them in a certain way. I was like, I want to go see straight plays like because musicals were the only thing that would come into town professionally you, I feel and like and you say straight plays you mean without music just without singing or yes. anything I just wanted to see scene work and like yes. storytelling in in a theatrical play without without a, the musical element right I feel like in a lot of ways but that said I my dad always would get the original cast recording of whatever musical we were about to go to and Not play to. it a lot oh yeah in the same, week same in up. our house uh yeah. and uh, it always drove me crazy we'd literally be listening to it on the way to see the musical. And I was like, baby, can we get a break? Can we just get a break for me? Because we're about to see it. No, you cannot. <laughs> but, so, but still, with Rent, I feel like that came out. It, it, I actually was rocking it on my CD player. Like, I took the, the double disc upstairs. There were certain songs I really enjoyed. Living in America. I don't even know if that's the name of the song, but I really love that. Take Me or Leave Me. Dying I love. in America. It's so good. And, and, and it was just like, oh, wow, for the first time, I feel yes, like I'm hearing. Yes, I just hearing... need you to know that every time you say the name of a song, I will say. Yes, that's Thank fine. You. That's why. It's just like, by the way, Lexi watching it with her. Same thing. She it's was like, I'm going to sing along to the whole thing. I was like, that's fine. You, you, I should. This should be my experience. I should be watching it with someone who knows that is like singing through yes, the whole Henry movie. Yes, Henry sang it all. Yes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, um, but it was actually for the one of the first times I was like listening to something outside of a musical because I just liked the songs. I thought they were good. And then it has this whole turn because then you get around all these musical theater people who are like obsessed with Rent. And I think two things happen. 
I think that, yes, musical theater people, especially at an earlier age, are annoying. And so anything they Ouch. love, kind of you bounce off of it Ouch. a little bit. But at the same time, I think I was also supposed Fair. to yes, I know. think it wasn't cool. I was suppo- I, I realized really quickly, like, oh, to be like a cool, you know, whatever with it, I need to like think this is lame. And now in hindsight, I just want to say to everybody, I think we can all enjoy Rent again. I think it's time. Get rid of the guilty pleasures. There's no such thing. It's just pleasure. Well, I mean, I didn't, for for a kid who really was around musicals all the time, I just, Rent never occurred. My mom even loves Rent, but I never knew the songs or anything. Hmm. So I'm learning a lot this week. (laughs) So you saw it. it. You saw that. First of all, just want to throw it out there. There is a 2008 production, the final performance of the show before it shut down on Broadway. The original cast comes out at the very end and they all sing seasons of love together except for Adina. I didn't see it in there, Adina. Well, Adina has too big has, for it, huh? She had a lot to do. But uh regardless, <laughs> it's a great production. It's all on YouTube and it's a really Crazy. good quality version Definitely of it. Definitely watch that instead of watching Rent the movie. Mm-hmm. Can we just have a consensus here? If you like Rent, watch the YouTube yes. version of it instead. I mean, maybe watch the movie if you're morbidly curious, but I think at the end of the day uh, it was like I think it's all about that live performance. Yeah, because I think we were just talking about this before we started recording. It does. It, it has that cats uh, feeling <laughs> to it, where it's this high budget, over the top movie trying to show poor people, but like <laughs> using just like millions of dollars to show it, and yeah. it doesn't really work. Yeah, they're is. like in this apartment that they're like, oh, it's so gross in here, and it's just like beautifully lit and perfect inside, and you're just like, I don't believe you. At all. And, so. and, yeah. And instead of the original version, which is in a literally a renovated theater that they kept that way so that they could keep this raw feeling of, of like what yeah. it was like to live in New York back when living in New York was actually kind of cool. Yeah. yeah uh, and also, I mean, that's the first thing that came to my head watching it for the first yeah. time, other than this is the most Gen X shit I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. Um, was oh, like, yes. <laughs> the places they're living in Alphabet City are still shitty, but now you have to be a millionaire to live mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. At least, I guess, at that point, you could live there for $200 a month. 10th Street and Avenue A, right? I mean, that was totally a scary place at one point in time and now could not be further from I mean, a it's scary, scary, it's scary you, but expensive. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. it's scary and filled with frat people. Like, I feel like yeah, that is scary yeah. for like lame reasons. And that you just like puking in the streets. Yeah. There's a lot of puke in the streets. You have to yeah. watch out for now. roofies a lot more. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 right. It's probably actually technically more dangerous than it yeah. was. Just it looks nicer. Uh, but all that said, you know, I think now, A, it's become a period piece, a nostalgia piece. And now I think all that shitty tarnish of like, ugh, musical theater kids that were like so in your face about it or whatever, that's all washed away for me. Maybe that was just my personal experience. And now I'm just seeing it for what it is. I'm taking it for what it is. And Take me for what I am. Baby. I And especially now that I learned the story, because I actually didn't know that our creator of this musical passed away literally the night of no, the final. No, that's crazy. Pre- the right? story of, of this. Of the final preview. I didn't know that. I, so, so And that pisses me off too when people go like, oh, it's only popular because of this mystique no. around the thing. And I was like, dude, I didn't even know about that. And yeah. I thought it was a great musical. And honestly, was only annoyed at its popularity. <laughs> to be, If you want to really get down to it, because just people loved it so much they wanted and it's seeing it all the time in my face. And I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. And now that all that's washed away, I well, just... now it's Hamilton. Hamilton's now it is the one. Kind of, yeah, now, now that has become Hamilton. But yeah. now, now, that, now that I can just see it as this musical, this musical happened in, in a context, knowing the story of the creator. I mean, not only was I enjoying it, but I was like, 
openly weeping uh, throughout the research uh, process and the viewing of, of the musical itself. And it actually made me sad in a lot of the articles that I was reading about it that people have written since and especially right after the movie and everything about Rent was a product of its time and that it doesn't hold up. When in reality, Jonathan Larson had set out to write the hair of yeah. our generation. He wanted it to be and that's stuck what it in is. time. Right. Yeah. It's stuck in it. He wanted he to show what sure. <laughs> bohemians were like in New York at this time period when everyone he knew was dying of AIDS. Yeah. And he wanted to have that in a capsule yeah. that he does have. And he never got to see it happen. And in the same way where I never felt that same kind of connection. I love Tick, Tick, Boom, Don't Get Me Wrong, which is the <laughs> other, which is another one of his huge musicals that he wrote because he studied with Sondheim. And I like it, but it, this really is, it seems, what he wanted to make. Yeah. And it does add a layer of sadness that he never got to see it become this. Of course. I mean, and one of the other things, too, is you can actually also almost look at it as slightly unfinished in all these ways. It because uh, one of the most mind blowers for me, my favorite song in the musical is definitely Take Me or Leave Me, right? The, the I especially back then, still probably is now, even though some other ones are creeping up there for me now that I've revisited uh, the musical. Will I lose that, my that, So Lexi looked over, I'm like weeping. She's like, why? Knowing that a man literally stood up in the place that he volunteered at, which we'll all, I'll call out when we get into the real nitty gritty. And I'll but sing the whole song. The okay. man, a man actually, right. knowing a real man <laughs> battling with this stood up and said that. Will I lose my dignity? Like that line. Now I can't watch it. Now now I can't watch it the same way. I'm like literally, we. I'm getting teary just talking about it. But like she, and I was just like, and then we. I paused it and I was like, so the reason I'm crying, right? Like I, I had that fucking voice or whatever, and like I'm just, and then Lexi's crying. So I'm just like, he actually, there was a man that really said that. <laughs> there was a man. No man was there. In, a, in an HIV support group, there was a man that said, "Will I lose my dignity?" and was asking oh. as an I'm not open-ended afraid of dying, question. I'm not afraid but of dying, I'm, but will I lose my dignity? Yeah. And so Ugh. he wrote, and and. Jonathan Larson is a lot of things, and we will get into that. He <laughs> seems like he, man, he knew how great he was. A theater he nerd definitely for was. all theater nerds. And part of me, and I remember when I first started learning about Jonathan Larson, definitely rolled my eyes at the fact like, oh, he's a Westchester kid right. that got to go to private school and all this. But you know what? There is a point in time when you can choose your life and where you're going. And he chose Fuck to not yeah. had to be completely, he cut himself off from his parents. It was like, I love you. Give me nothing. I want to go figure my shit out. Sure. And so, and I, in my brain, always thought that he died and that he got like this. And I thought he was like 23, but he was 36 years old. Mm. So he had lived a good amount of time Poor as fuck, mm -hmm. writing hundreds of songs hundreds of every songs. week of trying Prolific. to churn out to create something that was his. Yeah, this whole thing um, really too, I said it when I got my piano and this just can read. Singer-songwriter Holden McNeely. Singer-songwriter Holden McNeely. Ah, yes. I've been playing every day and this was the most ins biggest inspiration for what I, my decree that I made a while back, which is the ultimate goal is to, for me to write a musical. And seeing how oh, yeah. hard he worked and how prolific he was and that he was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to make this thing, you know, this very specific thing, you know what I mean? And, and, and setting out and then fucking accomplishing it. 
like making his generation's hair, which he completely did. One of my favorite things was reading that he said that and then also reading later. I think it was just even in the Wikipedia article. There was a passage that just said, you know, Seasons of Love got regular radio play. That was something that hadn't been seen since Age of Aquarius and has rarely seen. From a Broadway show. To to see that it literally did it like it was referenced in comparison to hair is like such a reward. Like, that's so amazing. I got tingles you saying it. I love red. So, Jackie, I feel like I'm tingles, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I almost cut you off with my like talking about how I like oh was over it and now I like love it and I'm gooey about it but I want to hear a little bit more because you were talking to me in the car about your writ obsession and it goes deep it really does it go I mean I like even looking at all of the articles and everything I, I had like cut out every picture that you can that I printed off of my family's computer Aww. that would be too dark and so I'd take it to the library and try and fax it again to lighten it up so I could <laughs> see everyone on so that I could cut it out Aww. and glue it to my my books like all of my like like notebooks and stuff like that i was obsessed i was the people that y'all hated <laughs> i i sang it all the time i definitely used yeah but you know what guys no day but today and i definitely <laughs> said it in complete seriousness when i was 14 years old and this show for me was so much because I did roll with the queer druggy crowd mm-hmm. that we did feel like nobody understood us. Yeah. And then there was a, this musical that we all loved, but also were very, it was the first time I loved something that I thought I should be ashamed of, but was very open about it. Yeah. And I was like, I don't care. I love this. And this, this is a group of queer artists that are making this show and I love it too. And it was that of, it was for the first time, you know, I, like we grew up in Queens, but at this point in time, I found it in Palm Harbor, Florida, where, you know, nobody really wanted to listen to this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or even the idea of the line of sisters were close when they both kiss, when yeah. Joanne and Maureen kiss and yeah, Louis yeah, Bohem, yeah. where we, that was the time period that all of this was never before seen on a Broadway stage to this extent and that they brought actually like the world of bohemia to a stage to someone that lived in palm harbor florida yeah i never knew that side of new york and i also i think that that was experience oh sorry i was i think that was rocky horror for me Mm -hmm. yeah and like i yeah i just missed the whole rent thing but that's really cool that you found that in in Palm Harbor. Not that Palm Harbor's not great. Well, I have um, to, I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't know about Palm Harbor, but I mean, you, you, y'all went to Charlotte for my wedding. Y'all oh, yes. saw how cookie cutter Charlotte is. It is so- Very pretty. So pretty, so clean. Everything is just, just right. Everything's right in its right it place. Is. It's a little, it's a little stressful. And so this musical has this like, agreed. This musical had this alien element to me of not just New York, which was incredibly intimidating to me as a kid. And, but yet there was a mystique that obviously it up drawing me there later in life and then on top of that queer culture because as much as we were liberal we went to unitarian church i i was thinking back i was like who who was out at my high school no one was fucking out at my high school no one no one was like queer like this Mm -hmm. especially not queer like angel like and and it was it was um kind of a culture shock for me and i think i definitely was was um yeah, I was kind of thrown for a loop by the contents of Rent, and it actually helped open my eyes to like, oh, life is so different outside of Charlotte, and and these there are so many things going on that I don't understand, and I can either be scared of them or I can like a, a pro, embrace them. I feel like 
later in, a few years later even I end up watching like Hedwig and getting really into that and really start embracing queer culture which I want to well, do that because I feel like it's like we did Rocky Horror we're doing Rent I do, we I, need to do that's Hedwig the trifecta, those are right? the, it is the ones of like for us of being people that were more on the outside of like oh a musical spoke to me in yeah. a different way uh-huh. yeah and, and I was actually really t- shocked by when, after I got over the Gen Z-ness of everything I mean I'm sorry Gen X-ness of everything um I was actually amazed and and really surprised that they showed a, like gay relationships in like a non caricature yeah. way. Exactly, and that's that what's was so great. And what that's was so what they wanted, right? Yeah, Angel and, that and Tom Collins. Mm-hmm. The, Live in my house. Every time <laughs> I hear the opening of uh, that song with Jesse Elmore, I'm I'm I was tearing up thinking about it while you guys were talking. <laughs> Um, that yeah, it was the kind of thing that amazing. I feel like it, uh, there were so many queer characters that were used as caricatures at the time period, and they were all striving to show no. That's not, like, but what about the reality of it, and how do we bring a reality to a musical, which is in, in itself is bombastic? But you have those moments, and we'll talk about that song where Jesse L. Martin was like, "I can't sing that song," and they came together and was like, "But you can." And you have to because feel the love you have for Angel. And like he looked apparently like in the rehearsals would stare into Angel's eyes and sing the song to him. Mm. And they, that's when they like found it. They found mm. their love. They found Aww. each other. And I just. Oh, it's great. I also oh, do. I, I in case anybody was wondering if I was going to go ham on this, I will say I have classically criticized the song. Will you light my candle in my mini streams and, and podcasts? It. But I will say upon a rewatch of it, <laughs> nothing. Your hair in the moonlight. All right, but I will say I, I I found it to be less grating than I used to find it. Uh, I wouldn't call least. it the best song of the musical, but no. I think I actually think it's it is, almost more like an opera, right? There, yes. there's no I was talking. just about that's to say because that's why it's based on Lobo I will say though um, from a, now a perspective of exactly Natalie of storytelling it does a great job so and and and, and establishing a relationship and in totally bringing you into the world of these two characters it does a fantastic job of that even though maybe I find it to be slight like that the, just the voice like I just always found that to be grading back in the day I but mean, now I I'm understand. like oh actually I kind of like this this is yeah. like <laughs> I get it. And now I guess we have to get, we got to get, get into, into the it. So we have so much this. to cover. So I have right here to begin just uh, first there was La Boheme and Billy Aronson. So let's talk about La Boheme, an opera in four acts that was composed by Giacomo Puccini between 1893 and 1895. And it is set in Paris around 1830. It shows off the bohemian lifestyle of the time and centers around a poor seamstress and her artist friends. And it's actually a lot of one-to-ones here. Uh, so yes, we, these characters do find their way into Rent. Uh, Mimi was a seamstress with tuberculosis in La Boheme, but in Rent, she is an erotic dancer with HIV. The girlfriend of Roger, who is our Rodolfo from La Boheme, seen as a poet in that work, but is a songwriter-musician with HIV in Rent. Uh, Marcello, the painter in La Boheme, is Mark in Rent, a filmmaker. Musetta, a singer, is Maureen, the performance artist. Uh, Chalnard, the musician, is Angel, the drag queen, percussionist in Rent. Colleen, the philosopher, is Tom Collins, a part-time philosophy professor at NYU who also has AIDS. AIDS. 
Alchindoro, the state counselor, is Joanne, the lesbian lawyer, and Maureen's girlfriend. And lastly, Benoit is the landlord in La Boheme and is Benny, the landlord in Rent. So there's actually a lot of clever adaptation going on that I never saw. I feel yes. like if it's not from La Boheme, it's from his life in New York. And that's what I like, too, is that they that it was very important for them is to update La Boheme and not just do the one-to-one. Because while La Boheme romanticizes death, which apparently was very trendy in 1896 when it premiered. Rent celebrates life with all of its might, as evidenced by all of the references to life in the show. There's Life Cafe, there's the Angels Group Life Support. While Bohem is tragic, Rent is joyous. While Bohem's bohemian world is romantic and poetic, the world of Rent is tough, gritty, angry, and real. Mm. While Bohem has Musetta's waltz, Rent has the cynical, Tango Maureen. Mm-hmm. While Bohem observes the Bohemians from a distance, rent is written by a Bohemian, someone who had trouble paying the rent, whose friends were dying of AIDS, and it fully inhabits that world. This paragraph made so much sense yeah. to yeah. me because I had, you know, I have seen La Bohem before and it is a tragic opera. And I, rent, although you cry, there is a sense of. I mean, there's no day but today. It is, you keep no going. Day YOLO! Today. YOLO! 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 Yeah, and now we have That'll YOLO. That'll be the modern day. Yeah, modern day is going to be, um, it's going to be called gentrification, and the song will be called YOLO. Uh, yes, absolutely. Jackie, did you see La Boheme um, in the context of knowing it was rent-ish? Yes. Oh, uh, yes. No, okay. I, oh, oh, mama. I was so a rent head. Can you give because that is definitely a blind spot in my research or, or whatever leading up to this. Um, can you give us a feel for La Boheme or what? It's sad. An, it's long. an opera. It's long. <laughs> it's it's sad and long, and As it wasn't in English. <laughs> yes. So I had yes. knew obviously of the story because honestly, I found it uh, through Rent, right. and I went to see it, and it was cool, but I had no idea what was going on, okay. and um, it was definitely so beautiful to watch. I love it. It's yeah. Also, even though you saw it, it's a kind of a blind spot for you as no, well. No, no, but it was have, have you ever seen an opera, Holden? No, I, I'm so intimidated because of exactly what Jackie's describing. I've only seen a couple, and it is you are basically looking at beautiful pictures, trying to discern what's happening. Right. But now the Met now they have they, subtitles. Yeah, they do right? subtitles in front of your seat at the Met, and I went. Before I actually that. would like that. Yes. Yeah, that would actually. But maybe then you're help. not watching it. Like, right. I, I feel like you can feel the emotions from it. Like opera. I, I think that's cool. But also, can we? not look at screens for five fucking minutes. (laughs) This is very true as well. Because, I mean, I've been, I've really enjoyed ballet and I feel like it's also not, you know, nothing's being explained to you. Right. Oh, but everything's being explained to you (laughs) through the bodies. Uh... (laughs) All right. Then there's also Billy Aronson, an American playwright who had wanted to create a musical based on the classic opera, quote, in which the luscious splendor of Puccini's world could be replaced with the coarseness and noise of modern New York. So he goes to a spot that I saw, I knew about and saw, I believe, in, you know, even when I was in New York, he goes to Playwrights Horizons. It is a theater in New York. It focuses on new works. And there he asks for composer recommendations. That is how he ends up getting connected to Jonathan Larson. And that's because he said he came to New York in 1983. He says, I was living in Hell's Kitchen, which was a very rough neighborhood. I would take walks every so often up to Lincoln Center to get cheap standing room at the opera. And I remember walking home one night after seeing La Boheme and noticing the contrast between the luscious world of the opera and the world itself. 
Blah Boheme is about young artists. They're poor, they're destitute, yet despite that, they're still in love. And being young, poor, and a hopeless romantic myself, I related to that. So I wanted to do something that took the world of Boheme and made it my world. <laughs> and um, that's why I honestly, I did not know about Billy Aronson. Yeah. I only knew about Jonathan Larson, but it is Billy Aronson's original idea, but he himself was a composer, but not a... No, he was a writer, not a composer. He was a writer, and but not needed, a composer. He needed somebody to write music for. I will say, they we'll get to the agreement they come to in just a little bit. And he, in hindsight, has even said he loves what it became. And he's also kind of happy he he didn't he wasn't there to screw it up. <laughs> so he was like, actually, I'm just glad he took it and ran with it. Let's get into that, though. Jonathan Larson, born to Jewish parents in White Plains, New York in 1960. He played the trumpet and tuba, sang in his school's choir, and took formal piano lessons as a boy, and coupled with his education in classical composers and musical theater, especially the works of Stephen Sondheim, as, as he's already been mentioned. What's actually cool is that he was an actual protege of Sondheim. That's really, I and did not know that, he, by So the he way. was not only a fan of Sondheim, he wrote him multiple letters when he was at Adelphi, and Sondheim enjoyed what he was working on because Sondheim said he encouraged that, quote, young people are still writing for theater when they could be writing pop and rock tunes. It doesn't matter if their shows are good or bad. They're keeping the idiom alive. So Sondheim actually ended up working with Jonathan Larson on multiple of his shows. That's why he ended up producing Tick, Tick, Boom later on. Hell yeah. And uh, also, Jonathan Larson loved that old time of rock and roll. <laughs> Is <laughs> listening to the music of Elton John, the Beatles, the Doors, the Who, and Billy Joel as well, all influencing his composition. In high school, he gets into acting, plays the lead in several productions at his school. He ends up going to Adelphi University, majors in acting, while also getting into music composition, which led to composing his first musical store called Libro de Buen Amor, which he did for Ooh, his mentor. Right? Which he did for his mentore wow. and head of the theater department, Jacques Belville. Oh. <laughs> he then worked what in some. <laughs> that's just that's how they talk, right? Oh, maybe <laughs> they do that in the end. When they, right. when they say something real saucy at the he, end, they go, There are AIDS in this whole <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I forgot for a millisecond. <laughs> um, sorry, I had joy in my heart for a millisecond. Uh, he then worked in a summer stock theater program, and that earned him his equity card. Of course, the first thing every actor tries to get, especially theater actor, uh, out of school. After that, he moves into a loft with no heat on the fifth floor of a building at the corner of Greenwich Village and Spring Street in Lower Manhattan, which is How's like. How's he gonna pay? How's he gonna pay? How's he gonna pay? Whoa. That's the only part I know. That was the only song. So for the next nine years, Larson waits tables at the Moondance Diner on weekends while composing during the week. He was definitely, he knew he was good at what he did. And he refused to get a job doing anything else. He like he was like I definitely could have written jingles. I could have worked making music and doing other things like but I wanted to write musicals, which is why honestly this diner that he worked at for a long time did kind of remind me of the place that I worked at for 8 years in my 20s of like, well this place I know it and they can I can go do auditions. I can be like, hey, I got to leave for three weeks to go do a project. I could come back to the job. This is what his job was here, that he could come in and out. So it is cool to know that he would go work 
uh, his job at the diner and then just he had a girlfriend at the time victoria who said he would write for eight hours almost every single wow. day yeah they always talk about how he would you know they'd go to a party he'd leave an hour later he was always just going back home and being i didn't a- even realize he had a girlfriend yeah he yeah seemed, he seemed so seemed asexual so to me where he was just like right right all he cared about was the music which is why she ended up stopping being his girlfriend yeah. but Ma- like maintain their relationship and was just kind of always his best friend. She also mm-hmm. was actually a song. His girlfriend was a song. His girlfriend was a song. So yeah, he never really broke from that. But uh, yes, uh, his uh, uh, friend and ex-roommate said this is Jonathan Burkhart by the way. He's going to come up uh, with a lot of quotes throughout this. Our apartment is what you see in rent. We literally had one extension cord that snaked all the way through the apartment. There was no heat except from the oven, and the shower was in the kitchen. And the floors were all fucked up. The toilet was in its own room, and the floorboards were so rotten that certain boards you stepped on, like pieces of wood, would come out. It was a mess. But you know what I remember? I think I paid $125 a month rent my first six months. They're in the middle of fucking Manhattan. This is 1984. I think the rent went up to like 150 and then 200. And I think it was 200 for a long time. It was cheap. Fucking cheap. Even back then. Mind you, it was a shithole. I spent a lot more money on shitholes in Long Island. Yeah. I will say that. Yeah, they'd have that similar description, I would say. Oh, very similar. Oh, my God. So many German cockroaches. And my my band's first album we recorded in in a place that reminds me of of this. In the middle of Bed-Stuy. Just horrible, all the drug addicts outside. It was fucking crazy. I mean, so it, it speaks to my heart now, too. I guess that's the other thing about this musical is like, man, I kind of lived a little bit of this stuff, you know, not in a yeah. not, not in a Gen X way, but in a more like millennial. We all did. The things that we did were disgusting. Yeah. How we like wanted to. And he, honestly, the shows in the places that we, we it's like how many shows we would do, like we did a show in the back of a U-Haul right. truck. We doing shows where right. you'd go in, you look around like this is the place. All right. And well, that, and Natalie, I guess we'll go in. I already I remember your stories about just like with a bunch of ladies just sleeping on the f- floors and whatever. Well, and yeah, all just that, kinda... that one in uh, that I had that was right off of the JMZ was like uh-huh. it was a loft meant for one or two people. And it just had we had six or seven people <laughs> living there at a time. And it was just wall like drywalled off corners. So I was lucky because I had a little window cut out of the drywall. Oh, you had a, window? <laughs> a lot of you people on the second floor were in literal oh. like coffins. Oh my god, where they slept. That's so crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. So we've all kind of had a taste of it. It's still there. You can find it. It's just in Brooklyn now. Well, now yeah. I think actually I think where I was ten years ago is not yeah, not affordable now, now either. Super expensive. <laughs> Although I think after the quarantine, I think things are kind of going. Oh yeah, back. I hope yeah, so. Yeah, actually, that, that might so. be it. Might be a good time to go so Aronson and Larson meet up at Larson's apartment in the West Village and Aronson said he was kind of messy his hair was all over the place but he was very passionate and we were both nervous I would say artists you know want a certain you're used to having total control and collaboration was kind of scary for both of us I think but we went ahead with it Aronson also said right off the bat he said this could be our generation's hair and I had not been thinking along those lines at all I was thinking of a story with a few characters like Bohem is he said no this is hair for our generation I've been waiting for a chance to bring the MTV generation, which he then was calling us, to the theater. Nobody goes to the theater who likes MTV or who likes rock music, and we have to change that, and this will do it. It's sort of amazing looking back how clear-sighted he was about it. And, uh, yeah. I like it, too, that apparently when he had come to him, uh, when uh, Billy Aronson came to Jonathan Larson, he said he wanted to do a modern-day Labo M, set it on the Upper West Side, and make it
make it about yuppies and funny. And I said, that doesn't interest me. <laughs> but if you want to set it in Tompkins Square Park and do it seriously, I like that idea a lot. <laughs> he said he had never spent any time in the village, but he wrote a libretto. He wanted to write the book and lyrics, and I was set to write a few of the songs to the music and see what everyone's response was. And I like that it really was... <laughs> I love that quote. Um, If you want to do it shittily, like you're saying I you want to do it, then I don't want to do it. But if you want to do it in this really good way, that I want to do it. Especially, which makes, it makes sense because when uh, Billy Aronson was asked, how was it working with Larson? His response was very difficult. <laughs> he basically loved or hated everything each other did. <laughs> to become a playwright or composer, you want to control the universe. And we were both yeah. used to doing things exactly our Which way. is why I think they they split amicably. And but made at least an, it was yeah. amicable. Yeah. I'm so happy that it was. That it was totally. so serious. Like, our visions aren't aligning. So why don't you go do your thing? But and we'll talk about that later. It makes me like this story For sure. Even more. Because yeah. it's very difficult in a collaborative project. And that happens all the time in movies and film and stuff, too. So the best thing sometimes is that you still like each other afterwards. Yeah, 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 100%. I can still be your friend. Great. 100%. So actually, that part's coming up right here. They then need to make a tape, which involved them coming up with $600. And this is around the time. Once money gets involved, Aronson starts being like, oh, how much money am I going to sink into this thing? He doesn't want to lose too much on the project. And this is what put puts things on hold for a couple of years. Still, Larson cannot let this concept go, and he wants to continue alone, and eventually he does ask Aronson to do so. And that is when they make an agreement that Aronson would share in the proceeds and be given credit for, quote, original concept and additional lyrics, because they did come up with a few of the songs that made it into the show together. Oh, yeah. Uh, Aronson said he would send me tapes and scripts over the years. It just got better and better. I mean, I was amazed. He was clearly inspired. And that's so cool, too, that he was still sending him his work. And, and be like, what do you think? Yeah, it's so it's so cool. And especially during this time period, um, Jonathan Larson definitely seems to intimate that his songs were great. But it was the, the libretto that Aronson had written that helped put Rent on hold for so long. Mm. Uh, Larson said, I found different types of contemporary music for each character. So the hero, Roger, in Rent, sings in a Kurt Cobain-esque style. And the street transvestite sings like De La Soul. That is his words. And there's a Tom Waits-esque character. The American musical has always been taking contemporary music and using it to tell a story. So I'm trying to do that. We made a demo tape and everyone loved the concepts, loved the music. But when they read the accompanying libretto, they weren't too strong on it. So we just kept putting it on hold. I loved the concept, but I didn't have a burning reason to go back to it. And then I did. So all of this is in the late 80s, early 90s. So it was... Two years later, he says, a number of my friends, men and women, were finding out that they were HIV positive. I was devastated and needed to do something. In 1991, I decided to ask Billy if he would let me continue by myself, and he was very cool about it. Victoria, I read this article. Victoria, his girlfriend at the time, said the song. they had um, they had five um, good <laughs> yes, friends the at the time period. And can you imagine... That four of them died within months. Wow. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make a joke. I, that's why I kept going in a serious tone. Uh, it, very sad. And it dark. was very sad that at this time, it's like, can you imagine in your close group of friends, like just even thinking, all of us that work together, that. Mo like what is that 75 percent 80 percent of yeah. your friends are dead i mean i guess i guess I, I didn't have a section in my notes about like the aids epidemic in in new york but just uh to say it was awful and so widespread and crazy and um it's yeah terrible and then awful. it was and that the that the it was at the time period like the media made it seem as like oh don't worry about it. It's just the queers right, that are right. Dying. And the way the queer dirty culture people. was yes. treated as this Disgusting. othering thing. Yes. 
And again, um, just quickly mention that that was so powerful for me as a kid in Charlotte, North Carolina, who really just was not around much queer culture at all. And even if I was around it, it was very cleaned up for Charlotte. Right. And to get to experience this through this a little bit and get it get a sense of it was very powerful and important, I think, for people like me at the time. Yeah, kids across the country who maybe didn't see it in their face all just, the time. Yeah, and was right. and literally was fr- afraid of it because of the right. way other people made you feel about you know queer culture because they were so horrible. Yeah, like the, the adults around you are yes. giving you terrible things yeah. in your brain. Yeah, yeah. And, and then seeing like a mature, loving relationship between queer people in, in a show is so great. And 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 uh, seeing toxic relationships between queer yes. people that are the same as right. This they're like normal relationships. Yeah, yeah. just like yeah. normalizing it. Uh, Burkhart said for years he Jonathan Larson was truly flat broke. He didn't have a fucking penny. Couldn't rub two pennies together because all he did was conduct his life so that he could barely pay the rent and just write music. So he was not aggressive towards working to make money. He was aggressive in his composition and storytelling. And that's what leads him to write hundreds of songs. Uh, uh, yeah, it was it was just like, that's all he did. Uh, he, he barely went out, Burkhardt said, or he wouldn't go out at all. He'd say, don't go out. Let's just sit and listen to music. And really what that was was me listening to him play the piano. He lived at his keyboards, and all he did was compose and write music. He was prolific. So get ready and for the future is, of hanging out with oh, me, man. ladies. <laughs> Apparently the original music director, Tim Weil. Well? Wheel? I think Weil. Weil? But who knows? Whatever. Said about the success of Rent's music, which makes sense. It really begins and ends with Jonathan's writing as a great composer and a great lyricist. He knew as much about Billy Joel's piano playing as he knew about Sondheim lyric writing he was really just extraordinary and Sondheim went on to say a good deal of pop music has interesting lyrics but they're not theater lyrics a songwriter who works in the theater he emphasized must have a sense of what is theatrical of how to use the music to tell a story as opposed to writing a song Jonathan understood that instinctively so it's not only is he churning out all of this music but he's also very hard on himself Mm -hmm. about what is good and what is not and by writing a song by the way, he means having sex with his girlfriend. Yes, Veronica the song. <laughs> but also, uh, also, I love his excitement is for his work. He would call people at all hours of the night and play them a song he'd just written. And if they didn't pick up, he'd play it on their message machine. And there's something Which about that I find adorable. Which makes sense because of the voicemails in Rent. Yes. Uh, the, like that he would, that I'm so happy that he incorporated that into, and now I understand mm-hmm. why he incorporated the voicemails. Because honestly, as a teen, I usually skipped the voicemails. So much yeah. <laughs> so much of that worked for me and it didn't work before. Just yes. the moms yeah. calling to call home just means something totally different for, to me now than As it an ever older did. person, yeah. it really does change it, it. It's funny. It works now in a way. And it used to, yes, I used to kind of find it to be a little jarring and annoying a little bit. Now it's time to find a home for his new show. And at this time, the New York Theater Workshop was getting a new home at 79 East 4th Street in the East Village. And the artistic director, James C. Nicola, was in search of a show that spoke to that part of the city. Jonathan Larson just happens to ride his bike past this theater as they're undergoing renovations, which made it look like a perfect place for his rent. It's just such a New York story I know, as right? well. It really is. <laughs> Nicola says, well, it was fortuitous. A New York story that never happened to me. I uh, wish it no. did. <laughs> really wish it did. Well, it was fortuitous. <laughs> he popped his 
head in and saw his old friend, George Zenos, who was our production manager at the time, who was overseeing the renovation and said, this is going to be a great space and this would be a great spot for my new musical. What do I do? George told him to just drop it off at our offices on 42nd Street for me to look at it, which he did. So it was a script and a cassette tape of Jonathan playing his electric piano and singing the score. And that was the first encounter. It was pretty clear from that first listen to the tape that this is exactly what we were looking for. A project about the East Village, about the young folks that were living there at the time, and so much more. And it was written by this incredibly talented young composer, lyricist, and book writer. And then he just screamed the word AIDS. (laughs) (laughs) That was the only thing. This is basically the same story as Muppets Take Manhattan. Yes, kind of. (laughs) Larson said he did base his life story on that film. Mm, Did they live in lockers too at the beginning? No, he did. He did. And he did sing as a baby. What's her names? Like Ed, Fred, all of those, all dead of AIDS. Yes. Yes, All all the frogs. All the frogs. And the rats. And the rats. And the bats. No. They got the bats. Well, the bats is kind of obvious. They're just sharing blood all over the place. Yeah, just sucking it up. Uh, Next game of reading. This is back in 1993. It it was deemed too long and messy at this point, which led to a two-week workshop in 1994 and then another reading. And at the second reading, this reading starred Anthony Rapp and Daphne Rubin Vega. It was directed by Michael Grief, who's going to be our director for the show, and was attended by producers Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum. This is the big turning point. I do also love that everyone that has been cast in this, that all of the interviews, they're all like, yeah, I was like pitched to me as like a rock opera, like based on another opera. And uh-huh. like, nah, I'm good. Because again, these are people that are making $300 a week to do what? Eight performances yeah. every week, and yeah. why would you? Why would you say yes to That's that? That's why, and and we'll get to the cast in a second. I have a breakdown of this initial cast, but it's like kind of unbelievable who they got and where those some of those people ended up going. But they with were their nobodies careers. at the time. It's unbelievable that it, when you see something like so kismet happen, you know, and you're yeah. just like, wow, this is unbelievable. And speaking of kismet, Kevin McCollum said. And after the first act, Jeffrey took me back and said, this is Jonathan, and I did one of those cliche things that's been written about. I said, I love this. I love this. I I got my checkbook. What do you want to do? And he's leaning against the wall. He goes, do you want to see the second act? And I said, is this good as the first? I mean, I don't know what's going on, but this has great energy, and we should really try to do something. And he said, yeah, I'd love to try to do a production here. And I said, fantastic. And I sat down, and Jeffrey's like, you're a nut. And then somebody's getting married. <laughs> <laughs> That's my mistake, man. <laughs> uh, after several more readings and workshops, a production was put up in 1996 at the New York Theater Workshop. And while this is all going on, by the way, this is when Jonathan Larson is also working part-time at a nonprofit called Friends Indeed, which was a response to the AIDS crisis and inspired him a lot in terms of the musical, especially the song Life Support. And yeah, we also have that moment when the guy stands up, will I lose my dignity? And, and um, I'm the- a New Yorker. Fears my life. <laughs> and I I uh, have a quote later on, but when the, you know, I mean, apparently, like, he really put a lot of loving nods to his work at this place in his show. I mean, not well, just... Well, and also, Life Support yeah. is the song where it is in it, the, the no other road, <laughs> no other way, no day but today. I'm singing towards Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is that good or bad? <laughs> it's great. No okay. day but today. It's all the life support song um, is them introducing that part because everything. If you listen to the two CD yeah. original Broadway cast <laughs> recording, um, they include all Once of you find a CD player. Yes, if you can get a hold of one. Uh, yeah, for sure. It, it's it's kind of a magical thing, all this coming together, and this cast is such a big part of that. And that's what Bernie Delcy, the casting director, said. I didn't know it would be the hardest thing ever to cast. Yeah, you have some really good... So what's that person's name again? Because that person deserves all of the Bernie awards. Telsey. Bernie Telsey says, you go to meetings and you hear, we don't want a traditional musical theater voice. We want a rock voice. But it wasn't like today, where half the musicals are some sort of rock or pop musical. I was about to say, because again, in the context of this, like we're talking about this as if it's crazy today's perspective it's not crazy right. but back then no one was doing like rock rock and roll kind I mean, of stuff the closest, that was kind of yeah, dead since yeah, the 70s right. like 60s. jesus christ superstar and stuff like that tommy but, then, but that kind of went away yeah, and disappeared yeah. but bringing mtv that's why i like it's a musical for the mtv generation yeah and cats took it over cocaine cats, cocaine <laughs> two cats. for a decade and now we can get back to some real shit with uh rent yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry, but I did I cut you off? Did you have more from... Uh, no, that was just... Uh, he said, for an actor, there was no business reason to do it. It was a $300 a week paycheck. Where was I going to find these people? It was like being a detective. Like, okay, I don't know who Idina Menzel is. She sings at bar mitzvahs, but I'll try her. So all of these, it was a <laughs> ragtag group of yes. people that came together. And as we'll talk about through the rehearsal process created this show with Jonathan yeah. Anderson. Well, and man, we're so involved. And, and those songs are hard. Like, yes. you yes. can't just have somebody who likes to sing do those parts. Like, oh you my have God. to be able to do a lot with your voice. And are you not like like me where you're like almost like white knuckling the seat watching Angel's big dance routine where you're oh, yeah, jumping sure. on the table no, and I'm that. in those heels of and course. I'm just like God, that Today would be so nerve-wracking. No, I was excited. I was like, yeah, me. I want to do that. Give me that. I'll <laughs> do me, that part. To me, watching that, I'm like, she's going to fall. She's gonna, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it was my lucky day today on Avenue A when a lady in a limousine drove my way. She said, darling, be a dear. Haven't slept in a year. I need your help to make my neighbor's yappy dog disappear. Natalie and I just slowly back out of the room. <laughs> I as, will as sing the sings the entire it. musical. The, so, yes, these, this is the core group, and I'll briefly go over each one. First, we have Anthony Rapp, who came out of Illinois. He was very involved in community theater, even as a child, and made it onto Broadway at the age of 10 uh, in a musical and made his film debut six years later in the film Adventures in Babysitting, directed by the feature Rent film director Chris Columbus. And this is so Mm -hmm. weird because this week I'm also doing A Wizard and the Bruiser on Goonies. You are? Yes. Stolen from you. Jealous. Stolen Stolen from you. And Chris Chris Columbus directed that is, in fact, he may be my favorite, one of my favorite uh, uh, writers, directors of all time. I'm sorry, Chris Columbus wrote the script. Yeah, Richard Donner. Richard Donner directed directed it. it. But he has written. Oh, I guess somebody should have been a fucking doing that episode. We're talking about Rent, not Goonies right now. (laughs) Because Anthony Rapp said, my agent described it as a rock opera based on La Boheme. And the phrase rock opera didn't exactly fill me with confidence. At the time, musical theater was a lot of pageantry, and the idea of a rock opera felt to me like big wigs and loud, obnoxious things. Mm. So I didn't know what the tone would be. But I like what he says about this. He says, I've always felt that Mark was the closest sort of stand-in for Jonathan. Mm. Jonathan yes, himself was a cishet right? 
HIV negative man who was watching what was happening around him and responding to it and trying to find a way to channel the grief and anger and hopelessness that he was feeling into something positive. And Mark is very much doing that because, as you know, Mark is the cohesion of making the film, yes. quote unquote, the entire time. And uh, also, Anthony Rapper's audition for Rent sang Losing My Religion. And after he got the role, Jonathan Larson wrote songs specifically in Rap's voice. Uh, with with his voice in mind, Adam Pascal grew up in New York and played in rock bands as a kid, which so that makes him really perfect for this. While also getting interested in musical theater, it was actually Adina Menzel's boyfriend at the time that told him about Rent, and so he went out and auditioned on a whim, which ended up getting him a Tony Award. Mm, uh, and he was yeah. in a. a <laughs> I was gonna sing the song, uh, but I can't remember the. Your eyes. No, no, no uh, song glory, whatever. One song, one song, glory. <laughs> One song before I go. I know how to sing it just like Adam Pascal. But apparently he was a rock and rollist of sorts. <laughs> and although uh, he did very well in his audition, apparently he had a very big problem is that he couldn't keep his eyes open yes. when he sang. Yeah, yeah. That was the thing they had to learn. And uh, he had to learn because, and I had this too for the longest time. And Cowman, I, I would um, really close my eye, keep my eyes closed a lot while I to sang. To get into it. Just to get into it and just to kind of just get into my own space. And then I started playing to the audience. Lexi actually. Oh, you mean like not squinting when you're singing loud, but just like when you're getting into it. Like getting into it, your eyes yeah. shut. Your eyes just shut while you're singing I a see, song and you're really losing yourself to it. And you're just kind of like also maybe super self-conscious about being on stage too. The beers haven't kicked in yet. I used to close my eyes a lot more. Um, also, though, I will say uh, Lexi got to s- won the lottery. We'll talk about the lottery in a little while. I didn't know Rent established the Broadway established lottery. Established the lottery. Oh, so, really? So she won the lottery one time and was front row. And she said, when they do Seasons of Love, I mean, they sing it to you. Wow. And she said it was so powerful. Like, all these people, they stare right at you. Like, wow. right into your eyes and sing that song. And it is powerful uh daphne rubin vega i want to sit in the front row i, I know, never had right? to sit in the front row i'm sorry jackie <laughs> daphne rubin vega moved from panama to the u.s at the age of two her mother died when she was just 10 years old she studied theater at the new labyrinth uh theater company and performed in a comedy group called el barrio usa which led to an audition for the role of mimi marquez she sang roxanne by the police so this hurts roxanne. my heart for the audition yeah because a lot of people say that they don't like the original Mimi's voice because it is so like that it isn't a musical theater trained Mm. voice that it's like that raspy growl but as someone that has always had a low raspy voice to have like essentially the sexy character in a show or one of the many sexy characters in a show sing with that kind of growl was something that I loved because how many musicals did I listen to that I couldn't sing along to the girl parts and I could sing her songs why people not like it because it just like it is a very specific sound and it wasn't again I love that it sound. wasn't a musical theater sound and I will and say people, people, people like were super it. mad at the an, uh, animation uh, adaptation because they cast Marge Simpson and people were just like <laughs> yeah, why man. would you and even like uh, <laughs> I'd love to see a Simpsons rent <laughs> yeah <laughs> Jesse L. Martin moved from Virginia to New York at an early age and insecurities revolving around his southern accent caused him to be quite silent and shy I've heard this story in terms of actors, a million times. 
They get really shy early on. A mentor convinces him. Uh, he got really quiet, almost like a speech in, to a speech impediment degree. The, a mentor convinces him to join an after-school drama program, and this is what gets him out of his shell. He ends up studying at NYU and then waited tables while trying to get work until he got a couple of roles on Broadway leading up to Rent. And he didn't feel that he was a strong enough singer for this, so he went in, and apparently he said, I walked in, and I sang Amazing Grace, and they cast him on the wow. spot. Wow. What, what what did he play? I'm sorry. I didn't have Jesse cast. L. Martin yeah. plays um, Angel's lover, Collins. Tom Collins. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Awesome. Just trying to keep um, it in my head. And so he's the one with the live yeah. my house. Oh, my and God. So, and he was, again, he didn't see himself as a singer, which is why he didn't really want to go in for it necessarily. And uh, But... I mean, how do you say no when you're cast on the spot? Uh, unbelievable. Wilson Jermaine Heredia was the first angel on Broadway. He grew up in Brooklyn, the son of immigrants from the Dominican Republic. Don't have a ton more I, on him. He says, drag was on something I'd done before, but the lifestyle was very familiar to me. I'd been a club kid. I went into my audition in overalls, combat boots, and a goatee. Nice. I figured I'm not changing for an audition. I'd done a couple <laughs> off-Broadway shows, but at that point I was working the graveyard shift at the complaint center for a property management company, and my health insurance had just kicked in. Even after I got the part, I was debating taking it because it was a limited engagement. And what about my health insurance? <laughs> because that is the time period. Sure. It's like, I just got health insurance. What right. am I going to give it up for a, a, a small... I mean, that's still the case now. Yeah! yeah. I mean, there's a million shows that didn't go for his, for this one that did, so I totally get having hesitancy. And then we have Adina Menzel, who also grew up in the greater New York City area. She was working at just 15 as a, as you mentioned already, Jackie, as a wedding and bar mitzvah singer, which supported her through college at NYU's Tisch School for the Arts. Her first professional theater job was actually Rent as Maureen, which is kind of incredible, as we now know. You know, she must have been. She, she was and, really young during that. Yes. Very young, yeah. and this goes to show of why, like, in this business of going into any audition that you can, because the director had seen Idina in an audition a year earlier, and mm. he had written a note because he knew that they were going to be working on Rent. Not exactly right for this, but she'll be great as Maureen, a lesbian wow. performance artist. She had that sexuality and innocence and kookiness. And so she came into the audition with a leather patchwork miniskirt on of all different colors, and she just came in and nailed it. So he called her in to do it. And I love that you said that in the, you know, as you mentioned, the collaborative rehearsal process that she actually improv he had her improvise her whole. I would love art to piece. talk about that because apparently before rehearsals even started, Jonathan Larson invited the cast over to his loft and they had what they called a peasant's feast rap remembers. He gave us this really lovely toast, which was like, you're bringing to life my friends, hmm. some of whom are friends that I've lost. And so I wanted to open my home to you. They built this together and it's such a beautiful like that there's so many songs that like if it just wasn't working they'd take it out they were able to talk and work on things to make it work for all of them because in his brain they didn't know what was going to happen to this this was just going to be essentially staged readings that yeah. they were kind of fleshing out a little bit more and yeah. that is what it's it just so yeah and Idina Menzel was allowed to improvise her whole performance art piece because he wanted it to be 
her that brought it to life. And one of my favorite songs would have been different because apparently Grief says in the 94 workshop, there was another song at Angel's memorial service, a very beautiful song a woman from the ensemble sang. One of the first conversations Jonathan and I had with Tim's participation was, what would the extraordinary payoff be if Colin sang that song instead? It was very exciting to be there the moment the notion of the I'll cover you reprise was Mm. born. And Martin said, Jesse L. Martin, who played Collins, I was always struggling with the reprise. I'd go home and try my damnedest to open up my voice and let the song come to me, but it wasn't coming. I remember Michael telling me, you need to sing the shit out of this song. I remember grabbing myself by the balls and saying, just sing it. Let it out. I had to go to a gospel place. And then he sang oh. it, it. When he sang it, it was, oh, hello, hello, why did you and die? And then he let go of his balls. He was like, maybe I shouldn't grab grab my balls so vigorously. And then um, <laughs> Heredia, who played Angel, said, knew that his portrayal had to not be a caricature of the queer culture. Yeah. But one thing that really helped him was that Motherfucking Jesse L. Martin. During that time, portrayals of LGBTQ characters were more like comedy relief, and I didn't want Angel or the relationship to be that. Jesse has such a warm personality. You look into his eyes, and even if you're straight, you'd fall in love. I trusted him wholeheartedly. That made it easy. Yeah, there's such a really it was it was notable that they they showed a real romance. Yeah, between it was like a love story that we weren't watching for comedic. Relief. Mm-hmm. No, that. and it wasn't like it wasn't just like between oh, a very they're gay, huh? A, and and by the way, a very masculine African American man, right? Yes, like, yes. A very like, and I think that was important to from show Law and as Order. Well. You know Jesse L. Martin, yeah, yeah. And, and and I would say a a, a, a person in drag. They say in drag. I'm not sure exactly how to refer to Angel at this point in our current cultural lexicon, but I will just say that also in their own right, you know, to be. This very like exactly non caricature very present, very like like uh, and badass at the same yeah. time. Yes, like and in presenting that because I think people forget how badass you had to be. Right, like and still you still kind of do, but how especially in New York doing that, like yeah. you had to be able to fuck some people up if you're yeah, gonna for sure. Do that. Uh, Freddie Walker also went to NYU and playing Joanne Jefferson was also uh, her Broadway debut. That's amazing. And lastly, you have Tay Diggs Woo! who got a BFA in musical theater at Syracuse University before making his way to New York to star in Rent after doing a lot of regional theater in New Hampshire. He will later marry his co-star, Adina Menzel, which I didn't realize they were Oh, together. they were married for a long time. And they're now divorced. they're divorced. Uh, but it, it, like, he had a lot of hesitancy taking on this character. He's like, honestly, I really just thought it was the character with the least amount of lines. And they, <laughs> what they needed is actually very important for that character to be likable at the end of the day, yeah. even though he was just trying to do his job. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that they, the casting director really felt that Tate Diggs brought a genuine charm You're with right. him. You could definitely easily look at it from the perspective of like, these guys are being complete fuckers. They gotta pay their fucking <laughs> sure. rent. They gotta pay the rent. You can't rent. just like be an artist and like not have a date. You know what I mean? Like, well, I yeah, know. I would. That's the thing. I don't know if when you were younger, if you saw it differently. But that's the kind of character I could see as when I was young, being like, "Oh, gross, fuck this guy." Right. Oh and yeah. Thought, and now, like, he's just trying to keep the building. <laughs> he's gotta going. pay the mortgage. <laughs> no, it is very, it's very funny. I've definitely heard that take from people who like were, uh, uh you know, d- were were critics against us. Yes. You mean? 
mean? All they of those that were against us? They were living for tomorrow, and tomorrow's not rent, today. not for today. Uh, before we get to the part <laughs> where I cry on Mike, uh, did you want to talk about anything else with the uh, rehearsal process? No, it's just that they built it right. together. It just makes me... It, it, I Anthony Rat. Uh, Rap says he spoke very eloquently and specifically about how personal the show was to him as someone who was witnessing what was going on in the community and to his friends he felt he had to write something in response I think that it's just I really never knew that it was this much of a collaborative effort Mm. and it does change how I feel about things and what we will talk about later on which is the song that Roger's writing through the entire musical was never finished. And Jonathan Larson was not happy with the final product of that song when they, and they're like, well, we'll just find it in the previews. We'll figure out because he's supposed to be writing this epic song. And in the end with the Mimi, as like Mimi's dying in his arms. Um, it wasn't exact, like even Roger, Adam Pascal said, it wasn't the best song in the music. Uh-huh. And they, but they kept it as a way of showing, which does come across of like, None of it's finished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he couldn't have finished it then. He needed to experience so much more of his life to be able to write that opus that he was looking yeah, for. Yeah, did I already mention about Take Me or Leave Me being this very last minute edition? No. And like, I, I couldn't remember if I'd thought, I'd been thinking about it so much because it re- that is really the biggest tell that my favorite song in the musical was an offering. Literally, he came up with overnight during like that last couple weeks of previews. but So that just goes to show, I mean, he was cranking out great work all the way up until his passing on this show. And just another uh, nod to the idea that, I mean, there's another show in there that, or, or, or uh, uh, even possibly stronger show in, in there, which is uh, crazy to even think about because it is, I think, so strong as it is. But either way, Larson had been sick through technicals uh, of this show. You're going to deal with it. You're going to deal with it. I had to deal with it. And I cried while I wrote some of these quotes down. So I can't wait to try to read them aloud. Uh, yes, he's, he's been sick through tech rehearsal. He's dead. He's dead. And it's not even AIDS. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you should be fucking I'm sorry. sorry. Why did you make his heart you explode? Could, you could have been a doctor and you decided to I be a didn't. dancer instead. I did. I should have gone to medical school. <laughs> you should have been a, a Doogie Howser calling Natalie Hooser. Yeah. And you could have been a young doctor. Yeah, I don't think Natalie Hooser's oh, a good one. Oh, is that not? No, that's not a good one. <laughs> Well, I mean, she could just be <laughs> Natalie, Natalie Jean. Weiser. Natalie oh. Jean, PhD. That's oh, I thought it was that like like Doogie Howser though, like Natalie Weiser. Why? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm like, pretty great. Oh, yeah. like how? All and right, why? I'll write a new rent. All right, rent to. Oops, you stunned me into silence. This bit has stunned me into utter silence. All right. I don't want to talk about this dad. All right, here we go, please. Oh god. Um, so people thought it was the flu. He managed to make it to that final dress rehearsal. Director Michael Greaves said This is the thing. So he was in and out of the hospital. Uh-huh. And they didn't yes, know what it was yeah, because yeah. he's 35. And they're like, oh, maybe it's food poisoning. Like he just he ended up in fact in one of the rehearsals, he fainted at some point and it was at the exact line of them singing because we're dying in America and everyone crowded around him and he came back to and he said can you believe it I pass out in the theater right as the characters are singing dying in America and everybody laughed (laughs) 
Oh, that's so awful. Oh, cause he, and then he's sick and they don't know why he's sick. Uh, Michael Greaves said, we were having this meeting in the Time Cafe and that's a place we often had an early morning meeting to discuss the next steps in the musical's development. And I remember first hearing from Lynn that Jonathan had died the previous evening. I can't remember if I actually got to the Time Cafe or if I heard that news on the way to the Time Cafe. It was pretty straightforward to know that what Jonathan would want would be for the show to go on. We all knew this show was unfinished. I feel like the show was still unfinished. The people who worked on it most closely know that most. And I, it certainly would have been different with Jonathan's continued participation. And it's crazy because that night before, a critic from the New York Times had come to watch it before it opened. And he wanted to have a sit-down conversation with him. So Jonathan Larson was talking to Anthony Tomasini, the New York Times critic, while everyone left the night before, so no one got to say goodbye to him because they saw him in the booth up front and like kind of waved at him as he's talking to the New York Times critic. Because like you know what that means. Yeah. If a critic comes and you're not even in like the full previews yet, that's insane. And uh, Tomasini said he talked about his ambition, how it bothered him that pop and show music got divorced. But then he talked personally too, how he'd been a waiter for ten years, that he'd finally been able to quit his job, and that one of the messages of Rent was that it's not how long you're here, it's what you do while you're here. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so and so, <laughs> so apparently on his way home, he walked under a ladder, a black cat crossed his path, and then a homeless man just sta- just pointed at him and said, you're gonna die tonight. And he was just like, ha that's all a bunch of funny things that would happen. You um, do. Also, his roommate found him. Yeah, he, he was like in the middle. It was in the middle of the night. He was making himself some spaghetti, and there was just like water all over. Or no, he's making. It was an empty tea kettle that he was trying to fill up, and uh, he found him on the floor. And something that they saw on his computer that he had written the night before he died. It said, "In these dangerous times, where it seems the world is ripping apart at the seams." We can all learn how to survive from those who stare death squarely in the face every mm. day. And we should reach out to each other and bond as a community rather than hide from the terrors of life at the end of the millennium. And his father found that written on his computer. So they read it at his fucking funeral <laughs> because even his family had come in to see well, the opening I mean, that's when night. it gets so sad. Well, <laughs> like, no, no. they. I don't think they were going to until they found out he died. They he flew in. Died. They didn't even know if they were going to make it in time for opening. 35 years old he just dies he suffered an aortic dissection which is believed to have been caused by an undiagnosed genetic disorder called marfan syndrome you said you looked into it a little bit yeah it just it does it kind of makes your bones grow really long it's like i don't know what he looked like if he had those characteristics but everything i saw it was like you have long like it makes me look just like you he kind of looks I just know, like right? but without bit. the beard. Yeah. <laughs> well, like Joey Ramone didn't have it, but it's like that kind of body. I love that body. you looked up to see if he I had know, it. I know, I did. I did look. But it is like that. Um, And so I guess they hadn't known because it's not no. it's not curable, but you can treat it. And yeah. Probably they, they could have. If they could have pinpointed it, they would have. Right. They say he, he could have lived. Burkhart said, literally, I can't. I hate this quote. Uh, literally, <laughs> his heart ripped open. His aorta ripped and he bled out into his chest. And when you hear the songs that he's written about giving your art, uh, and he actually has a line in there about your heart ripping or your heart breaking, it's very poetic and it's very painful. <laughs> Stop. I told you I'm going to cry on mic, so. Stop. Um, so, yeah. Stop. <laughs> there was, 
So just the idea of that. And so that's why I'm like watching. That's why I watch the musical now. And I'm just like bawling because I'm just like, he, he, he put so much love in his work. His heart ripped open can in his imagine, chest. Can you imagine that the, 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 the cast had to get together, that they've been working on this and they've been working so closely together. And, and Anthony Rapp says it was incredibly shocking. He hadn't been feeling well, but there was absolutely no indication or warning. It seemed to any of us that he was going to die. And he goes on to say, the show itself is about living fully and joyfully in the face of crisis, in the face of grief, in the face of loss. That's what happened to us in that performance. And they, because that night, it was, you it was open. So you have this cast of people. They've been working so hard on this thing. This guy gets ripped from their life. They're in the middle of this production. They're literally just did the final preview. Perform if you've ever worked in the theater, I mean, Opening night, it, it happened overnight, and the next day it's opening night. Jason Burkhardt, he was on the phone with Jonathan Larson's father, Burkhardt was, and uh, his mother and him were on their way from Chicago to New York, like at that moment, trying to get there just to even deal with his death, much less this musical. And uh, Burkhardt said, I remember saying to him, I was just on the phone with Jim Nicola, and I asked him, what do we do about the show? And Al said very clearly, the show Goes on tonight. Goes on tonight. Well, I feel like it would have been a disservice to him to not do the show. Right. He like he gave his, his life, life to this to show. It. If you would just, I mean, that would be the last thing he would want to just go. Well, we have to shutter it because he he but passed. It was so cool, the dad like knew that. Yes, and he knew his son enough, and that's why I like that his, I mean, we'll get into it, that his <laughs> family was very supportive of them, like, no, you must live his legacy now. Alright, and then the crying doesn't stop. Producer <laughs> Kevin McCollum said, what Jeffrey and I did that day, I remember vividly, we took a walk around Bryant Park and we just said, everybody has to see this show. We have to do this. We don't know why he's dead. We don't know anything. We can't let anyone forget who this guy is. Crazy. I just hate that Jackie steal magnolias. <laughs> I can't talk about people dying before their time anymore. It's fucking makes me upset. <laughs> oh god. But it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's I'm crying and it's incredibly sad, but it's like so I wish I hope this is how I, I am treated. You I know? will, yes. I will go on. I'll go, oh, into play, the darkness. Yes. You'll scream, <laughs> oh, into the darkness. Because maybe, I, but that's what I plan to do. I plan to write a musical and right, then great. die the night before no. it goes on. Yes. Yeah. That's what I plan. <laughs> it's in my wishes. It's in my last wishes. No, no, no. Hopefully that doesn't happen. But if it does, <laughs> but if it does, Holden McNeely says the show must The show go must on. go on. We will still make the podcast. The director. <laughs> and then this is like the most both beautiful and ridiculously uh, musical theater thing I've ever heard in my entire they were life. they all just going to do it sitting down. <laughs> so they were just going to do a staged or no staging, just a sit down intimate reading For and family and friends. And <laughs> however, they all broke out into the choreography during La Vie Boheme and the uh, Act One finale and Act Two. They just did full choreography full they just as a did it. as almost a rebellion, a life imitating art moment. Anthony Rapp said. Sometimes in crisis, people can really fall apart or it can really splinter people off. But it was like the opposite thing happened for all of us. It brought us even stronger together. So that foundation is always there. But it is just so crazy as someone that it like I like to listen to many iterations of different musicals. Like I'm not a stan for just the original Broadway cast. But this one specifically, I am. When I was listening, I put it on Spotify and I was listening to a song. I was like, this is the 
movie version. <laughs> and I was just like flipped out. I, like, I don't want the movie version. Right. I want them. I want to hear them singing it. And Jeff's just like, honey. <laughs> he is so excited you? for us to not yes, be doing be Rent anymore. What, what, what did he like better? Steel Magnolia's Week or Rent I week? just, all of, honestly, it was the, I think the Britney Spears was rough. I think that was still the roughest that was time period. That, that was like, when he was like, it needs to end. <laughs> it has to be done. Um, so I love this part of the story as well. The, re- the remaining powers that be, they had to have an all hands on deck meeting to figure out how to move forward. They decide to go by committee vote between the four top dogs. And those those folks are artistic director James Nicola, director Michael Grief, musical director Tim Weil, and uh, dramaturg Lynn Thompson. So Tim Weil said, we knew we could do a certain amount of editing without betraying Jonathan's conception. And we took a look at earlier drafts of Rent so that if something had to be added, we could use his own material. None of our own writing was incorporated by any stretch of the imagination. But it wasn't done, which it does make sense that they had gone to like to the extent that it could have been and they did like move some things around but for on the whole this is what Jonathan Larson wanted and it's just it really sticks with me that your eyes he wasn't done with it and they all knew it so they kept it like that and that makes that song resonate with me so much harder uh-huh. and I mean this was supposed to be originally a six-week run at this village theater and man talk about Muppets Take Manhattan but going to Broadway right? like it does like it is it explodes producer and, and people didn't know the story yeah that's what I know when it's like oh you love it because like oh it's all this or mythology. It, got, it got popular only because of no, this tragic it exploded passing from the beginning Yeah, for sure. Uh, But also, I think I don't think that it became popular because of the story behind it. But I think the story behind it It is what made everybody who was working on it go ham. Yes. Go hard in the paint for this thing. Oh, yeah. Producer Kevin McCallum said everybody had a higher purpose and it was to get Jonathan's work heard and seen. And there was no looking back. It was an assault on the impossible. That's why it became possible. Burkhart said. Each day there was an awakening with a new audience and word of mouth was just exploding out of that theater. And every day the ticket sales were going faster and faster and faster. A New York Times article came out soon after the run started calling it, quote, exhilarating landmark rock opera. They very quickly realized they have to get this show to Broadway. However, the theater they want was taken. So there were two theaters that were dark because they were deemed uninhabitable. One of those theaters was the Nederlanders. So they decide to move it into the Nederlander and uh, again, they wanted to keep it under renovation through their run to make it look like a place where the musical would live. Uh, I love this too, that Julie Larson, who is Jonathan's sister, said, when the show was moving to the Nederlander Theater, half his friends said Jonathan would have hated it. And half said, oh my God, he'd love it. <laughs> and McCullum went on to say, the first day of sales was $750,000. Now that He said, now that's nothing. But back then, there wasn't the technology. You had to actually show up mm-hmm. and buy tickets at the theater. And uh, so, yes, it, it opens on Broadway. Uh, April 16, 1996, uh, for previews and fully opens 13 days later. Rap said at the top of the show, we dedicate this performance and every performance of Rent to our friend Jonathan Larson. Anthony Rapp talks about it in a really good way, I think, just how crazy this must have been. Because not only you're, it's it's both dealing with uh, grieving and also becoming a massive overnight success at the same time. Anthony Rapp said, all of it is so vivid, partly because of trauma. When we would show up at the New York Theater Workshop and Vanity Fair is coming to do a photo shoot, it's this surreal thing happening at the center of what is also happening, which is this personal grief. 
Um, the founder of Friends Indeed, Cy O'Neill, said, Boy, was it clear that a loving and loved man Jonathan Larson was. How do you measure, measuring love? That was the first time I heard any of those lyrics. It totally blew me away. It was so thrilling. Jonathan didn't tell me that there was a support group in the show. I had no idea. It was just staggering. There were Friends Indeed phrases, things we'd say all the time. No day, no but, day today. but today. There you go. All right. The cry part's pretty much done, I think. Um, I oh, made it I'll to that still last bit. cry. Do you want me to sing more? I'll sing more. Uh, you can say it. It's just the whole thing with the guy dying I know. early. It's just so upsetting. <laughs> and now this is the 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 beautiful part that yeah. makes your heart sing. I love this review And then of rip it. apart inside no, syndrome. AIDS. Rent was written. That wasn't AIDS that he died of. <laughs> I know, but I just had to scream it to the hilltops. Ren went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama along with four Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Book, Score, and Featured Actor in a Musical, uh, Heredia, who played Angel. But Heredia, who is of Dominican descent, says he wasn't able to fully comprehend the significance of his Tony win or the magnitude of the show itself until much later. So all of this is like, uh, and how much of them, like they talked about this, where they, like their careers exploded, their lives exploded, everything just kind of happened. And it is like a child actor way of just like, we didn't know what was up. And right. also, we're dealing with the grief right. of losing the, the, the head of this. Mm-hmm. It, it ran on Broadway, by the way, for 12 years, uh, 5,123 performances. It, that makes it the 10th longest running Broadway show. I'm sure that's well behind. Stupid yeah. ass cats. And cats. <laughs> uh, definitely a stronger uh, stronger run, probably. But either way, yeah, it goes all the way till, I think, 2008. And again, that whole final performance is on YouTube. And I highly suggest everyone check it I out. I don't get why cats is the one. I can't. It's cocaine. I think it's cocaine. Yeah. I think cocaine got really big in New York. And I could imagine nothing more thrilling That's for true. people who love cocaine at the musical theater than dance, dumbass dance, cats. Dance, yeah. dance, 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 And yeah. then like a 20-hour long song. It's just people yeah, wanting to fuck no a sense. bunch of people dressed like cats yeah. who are dancing around on stage. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah. And they're drawn so hard. You know yeah. what I mean? That, oh, that's Hitler probably would have true. loved cats. Hitler would have loved cats. <laughs> I think so. I mean, he loved Disney. He so. loved Disney stuff and he loved cocaine. Uh-huh. So there I think he probably would have loved cats. Either way, I don't know. Maybe strike that. Who knows? But um, either <laughs> I way. I say keep it in. Yeah. I tried to find this article that I read one day at, I think, an office job about rent heads because it was talking about these. Rent runs, you mean? Rent yes. runs. Rent, rent tenants. Tenants. No, that's people who love the movie Tenant. And those people should be. <laughs> Uh, quarantined. No more talking about tenants. And taken somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, the rent heads were definitely a thing. Refer to those dedicated young fans that really took after the whole bohemian lifestyle too. I mean, these are literally oh, vagabonds. Oh, Jackie we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. yeah, you're talking about me. Was, I'm a bit of a vagabond. Yeah, it was, it was Jackie. <laughs> Jackie was like, cool with being homeless. Uh, yes. And because it was a lot of just wayward souls, almost like the, uh, um, it was like the, the musical theater version of, almost of like gutter punks, but they seemed to be less like shitty than gutter punks but you know whoa, what I mean whoa. yes they need to feed they need to not have dogs <laughs> whoa. they shouldn't have, need dogs. To not I, I have dogs I agree yeah, I, honestly I'd be cool with them if they just stopped having the dogs I get it but uh, and screaming this, and harassing people when they pass by them on the street this was a time period that like <laughs> that so then people started camping out yeah because the rush tickets were $20 so yeah rush tickets $20 first come first serve it first right so everybody's camping out but the thing is what's funny even even uh, back in the 90s we forget this 
Broadway, Times Square area, not super safe. Like uh, it's to still just be not, and, and it's still not. No. But I mean, you know, they they've cleaned it up and made it all ridiculous. But like so uh, Jeffrey know, Seller really. was one of the producers said people would camp out for days to try and get like to st- sit in line, and they were worried about their safety. He said we became worried that kids were going to get hurt and get into trouble in the middle of the night with what was still a pretty large contingent of lowlifes around there. The show ended up replacing its ticket rush with Broadway's very first lottery set. And I had no idea that this established the lottery system, which is Mm -hmm. now commonplace for every show. There's a lottery system. You can hang out out front a couple hours before you put your name in the thing. If you win the lottery, you get the cheap seats. And what I love about it, too, is these tickets first two rows. So yeah. and I love when when anything does that. Like yeah. I love that this the Springsteen thing where they like send people up into the nosebleeds to bring down yeah. uh, uh, folks, For you sure. know, put them in the front. And it's all you know, it's the people who really like deserve to be in front, the ones that camped out, did whatever. Yeah. yeah. And uh so that's really cool. And that's what created this mystique around rent. I, I didn't realize they were doing it for the first time. Of course, that created a bunch of rent heads because it's about Bohemian lifestyle. It's these super cheap tickets as long as you put in the time and the work. Yep. And so these kids who just, this was what their world revolved around was this show. And they'd see it tens of times, hundreds of, you I know. I was saying I've seen it 11 times, but I saw it nine times before the age of 16. Wow. That's so crazy. So where? Yeah. It, How? I, I kept going to New York. Oh, wow. And my mom, who was very, very supportive of me, was down. So wow. we would go and we would like. Oh, I, I didn't was, know you did that. Oh, yeah. And then my friends and I would follow. <laughs> this is sad. We also then would follow a company as far as we could drive like on a weekend um, so that we could go. Like my friend who had first gotten the license at 16 was like, let's go. And wow. so we would go like following the dead. But we did it with rent instead. Down in so the that south? we could go. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. And, but wow. it's same. This is what Lexi uh, had said to Holden earlier, that they cut the part in Rent, which is the simulated sex it's part of it. It's called contact, hot, right? Hot, hot, They cut wet, that, sweet. yeah. You know, and it's all underneath a sheet. And I think it is a fun way, but I will say it's not, even as a horny person, it wasn't my favorite part of the show. Right. It's not the most, yeah, it's definitely kind of a uh, go get go get a cup of water <laughs> or go to the they, bathroom if you were allowed to. But yeah. they still yeah. didn't trust the South enough to have um, a queer sex scene on Ugh. stage. <laughs> of all, course. They also did, uh, I can't remember whether it was in mine or not in Charlotte. I, I really can't, but I will say, but... But when um, Angels in America came to Charlotte, there were classically protests, which, by the way, um, just leads to a sold out run. Jeez, of so, course it does. Yeah, you know, thank you. you <laughs> thanks. Stupid. Thanks for showing up out front of the theater Idiots. for that one. Uh, and yeah, guess who out. those people are? Josh Duggar. Wow. Like, don't, just like, just don't go see it. Yeah. Do, what, do, are you, oh, you're going to waste your I, time? I no, Great. No, no. Uh, please protest because again, it's it, it leads to sold out runs and so much more publicity than it would sure. have gotten. Uh, but that said, also there was a Rent School edition. They cut that song from it as well, and obviously cleaned up a lot of the drug references and sex references and stuff. Oh, good. Yeah. What? So wait, what was it, it about? Then? I don't even. Know. I was watching the show knowing that, and I was just like, how? How? This is all about candles, I guess. I don't really <laughs> yeah, exactly. know. Uh, so yes, then there's also. Um, the uh, the film directed by Chris Columbus. He directed Home Alone, Miss Doubtfire, Gremlins. I love the guy. Uh, the yeah, screenwriter, right? The screenwriter was done by Stephen Ch- uh, Chbosky, I think, who wrote the novel Perks of Being a Wallflower, which we should probably do an episode on. I do need to say so, just real quick. The film rights were sold in 1996, Damn. and they had tried to make this movie over and over again. In fact, Jane Rosenthal, the movie's longest suffering advocate, says my proper title of the movie should not be 
producer, it should be Sisyphus, <laughs> who recalls how the events of September 11th, 2001, derailed a key meeting on the project with Miramax chief Harvey Weinstein. Mm. And so they had tried, Spike Lee was originally attached to the movie, and he was having such hmm. a fucking runaround with Weinstein, who was like, yeah, we want you to do it, but he wouldn't write them any checks. Huh. And Spike Lee was like, Dude, we got it written. We got to just do it. Can we do it? Damn. And uh, long story short, between 9-11 and moving that one huge meeting and Weinstein giving them the runaround, it gave them the runaround until 2002 when Chicago won the Oscar for Best Picture. Mm. Uh, Interesting how the fucker changed his right. tune. Say an Oscar and then I wrote, so what does the fat bastard do? Goes <laughs> behind the back of the family because the family was the one who held the rights and still had to be able to sign off. And even though they were working with Spike Lee, he tries to sell rent to NBC to make a television movie out Ugh. of it. And then Jonathan Larson's family was like, no, you because they still had veto power, so they wouldn't oh, allow him to bastardize the production. But oh, then nice. it gets pushed, it gets pushed. Scorsese wanted to. to I would like it, to have seen Spike pushed. Lee's version. I yeah. know, and I want like and all I of hope this. that we get a revival. I think we're going to get a revival in about five to I ten think years, probably because it just came out too late. And it's just what you're right. It had a glossy sheen on it, Natalie. It didn't really, and also the weirdness with. I think it's awesome because I want to see them perform their roles, but they're too old for them. They arguably, at the same time, doing it. Tay Diggs, Wilson, Jermaine Heredia. I mean, I'll watch Tay Diggs though. Not right? that they weren't great at it. It's just it takes away the fact that like they're supposed to be like yeah. ages 19 to 21, yeah. 22. Uh, Jesse L. Martin, Adina Menzel, Adam Pascal, and Anthony Rapp all returned for their roles. Rosario Dawson and uh, Trey. Tracy Toms join the join the cast as well, the main eight. Uh, and yes, it comes out in 2005. It receives mixed and negative reviews. I think 2005 may have been the exact worst. I mean, the show closes on Broadway in 08. So I think this might have been the exact worst timeline yeah. for it to come out in terms of its relevance, in terms of its importance. I also like, just think Chris Columbus is the wrong director yeah, for it. Yeah, as much yeah. as I love his work. I do too, but it's he not, does, he's not gritty. He's not a like gritty. Spike, I hear Spike Lee and, I, and even yeah. Scorsese, and I'm like, oh, sure. immediately yes, better. They can than, do the grittiness but and I not do. put the polish on it. Didn't need polish. I do love yeah. Chris Columbus. I, I love Chris he's Columbus. He's made like all my favorite childhood movies. Absolutely. Now that, now, since I've started I doing still, research. I'm a big fan of the first Harry Potter, and I think he did a great yes, job with he it. also did that. He did that. Um, so yes, and then there's also Rent Live, Fox Airday live television production with an all new cast. Jonathan Larson's father and sister were credited as executive producers, at least they were involved. Uh, and during the dress rehearsal, I didn't know this. Brennan Hunt, who plays Roger, broke his foot, yep. but the show went on anyway with Hunt in a wheelchair. And they also used mostly, it looks like footage from the dress rehearsal mixed they into had like to, yeah. three live songs. That's crazy. That's yeah. a real center stage moment. He broke it was. His Right yeah, before I went on. but not I, in a good way. No. Yeah, I feel like they should have pushed it back. But they, I didn't, I didn't see that one. Is it? Uh, Me neither. Are the it wasn't good. performances <laughs> like lackluster? Yes, because they, uh, it like it was like, oh, one of our it's leads kind of just got reversal. hurt. Yeah, he's in a wheelchair. Everything's fucked. Like you know, if you do theater, like you do it over and over yeah. and over again so that yeah. it's in your bones. Yeah. And then to have it all fucked up, of course it fucked up the totally. performance. Yeah, that, I really felt that way about the live Rocky Horror too. I think yeah. that it was just like, they yeah. didn't, it did it, like the chemistry wasn't there yet and people kind of like did stunt. How the Grinch who stole Christmas music. <laughs> oh God, I forgot about that. Oh my God. I remember that nightmare. No. What a nightmare. Wow. Terrifying. I forgot all about that. Oh, just awful. I have, like one final 
juicer of a quote to read, but I am actually finished on my notes and I really don't want to dwell on rent life. No, no, we don't keep it moving. Do you have anything? Do you have anything else you want to say? I'm going to read this quote. Is there any other factoids? Thank you guys. I feel like I learned a lot about honestly, even just like looking up the words sodomy because I didn't know like that sodomy it's between Mm. God and me that like I learned a lot from this in a time period that like I had to go to the library to understand (laughs) some of the references that I did because I did because also it's filled with all these like art references and stuff and I was like I don't know any of these people so you know like it's how I learned about Gertrude Stein Mm -hmm. like it's how I learned about like all of these like that was another, that that was another funny thing I said to Lexi. I was like, what was it about songs in the 90s and just needing to like list things? List things. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, End yeah. of the world as we know it. Like all there were all these songs that came out that was just like, in this verse, we just list I, well, I stuff. I almost wonder if it's because you couldn't <laughs> Google stuff. So it yeah. made you feel like you were really smart. Yeah. Just referencing oh, yeah. all this shit back to back. Uh, so yeah, I, I would also say that I realized that um, I actually love musical theater and they were the cool ones. And I was the lame one for uh, feeling like I had to roll my eyes at it when I should have been up there singing along with all those kids. That's what I realized doing this episode. Uh, Here we go. One final quote. Michael Grief. There are so many scenes in Rent that are completely and totally relevant today, and I think probably the most important theme is one of worthiness, of feeling worthy and being loved, of being able to share love, of never taking for granted the time we may or may not have because we can never be certain of what's really right around the corner. I feel the show is so much about finding ways in which everyone can feel that their identity is valid and their relationships are valid and honored, that diversity is welcome. There's an inclusivity and an empathy in Rent and the ways in which the characters form a family and community and treat each other with kindness and respect. Those issues are every bit as relevant now as they ever were, if not more so. Also AIDS. Also, I uh, am tired of talking about people who died too young. No day but today. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for joining us for a tear-filled episode of Rent. Thank the you guys for allowing me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I um, no, it was great. I it was it was cool to learn about it, and I'm yeah. really looking forward to the Rent uh, baby version. I, I'm excited <laughs> for Rent baby version. I mean, I think this there will be a resurgence. I think this musical will come back. I think it needs a little more time in the incubator. But as even we are starting to see with our recent episodes about 90s movies and things like that, that they're starting to feel actually like period pieces. And I think as the 90s entities slowly become period pieces, this shit's going to come back in a really impactful, important way. And I hope Jonathan Larson's legacy lives on. I'm sure. I'm sure it will. Hell yeah. Jackie? Oh, my heart. It's going to explode. No, yeah. no, no, it's it, not. It, it won't. It won't loved, explode. He loved to do hard and do his work. Ugh, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, my name is Jackie Zabrowski. You can follow me on Instagram and check that worm no day but today. Don't forget. Hell yeah. Um, my name is Natalie Jean. You can follow me at the Natalie Jean. And you can also find me at a podcast called Someplace Underneath where if you want to be more upset about um, missing women, <laughs> Please join Amber and myself. There you go. Uh, Wizard the Bruiser podcast, I guess I should say. And uh, I always forget to plug my other podcast. Uh, also, check me out. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. On Fridays, I do a stream with Jackie. It's super fun. Check us out on there. And uh, yeah, if you want to support us further, again, Patreon.com forward slash Page 7 Podcast. And that's all she wrote. Uh, have a good one, everybody. And no day but, but today. today. YOLO. <laughs> this show is made possible by listeners like you. 
Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Thank you.